Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 14. Today, I'm joined by Charlie Noon, Digital Product Director of Bybore Create. We're going to be talking about his transition from creative agency to digital product, his thoughts on merging technology and textiles, and building new systems with Create. Hi, Charlie. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. How's it going? Doing great. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? My name is Charlie Duong. I'm a digital product director for Byboda and um, uh, born and raised in Virginia and currently based in Amsterdam. How'd you make that switch? That's uh, that's quite a big leap cross continent. Yeah, so I, I would probably say that. Um, so I actually did it for for my significant other. So my partner, she's um, born and raised in Amsterdam. And uh, when we were trying to figure out, you know, how we would become closer together. So we were doing long distance for quite a while. And uh, we were trying to see if she would come to the States or me to Amsterdam, it actually worked out. And that's the the transition over to Amsterdam was much easier than her coming to the States. Gotcha. Did you move to Amsterdam for Bybore or were you there already? Yeah, so I, I moved to Amsterdam like a little bit under four four years ago. And I actually, when I first started, I worked for a small um, digital design agency um, in Amsterdam. And that was kind of my first, uh, my first start here in Amsterdam. And I moved here specifically to be closer to my significant Gotcha. So you've kind of always been in like the creative space? Yeah, man. So, um, yeah, so I I moved here to take a design job at an agency. And uh, for my first year I was working on um, sustainable um, sustainable like uh, mobility services so how and, and I think that's pretty much like the big like if you if you've ever been to Amsterdam you'll probably notice that there's like a hundred different ways to get around the city besides <laughs> being in a car <laughs> man being see. from North America yeah. I just know the public transit and the uber yeah yeah exactly so when you come here like it, it's I think it's what's interesting man like if you if you're from North America or you come to Amsterdam, you're like, wow, there's like people on tiny bikes, on motorized bikes, on scooters, like of different sizes, on tandem bikes, <laughs> on bikes that are like, I don't know, have buckets in front of them or bikes that have other things attached to the back of them. But when, yeah, but basically when I first started here, I was working for um, an agency and my first project was building a mobility service um, through digital and physical. So how different mediums of travel so like car scooter bikes can actually be uh, a service for those like in a more sustainable community interesting interesting when you say scooter you don't mean lime scooters do you uh no so those are actually quite illegal in amsterdam thank god um i mean like uh, the vespa type like uh that's really european yeah like a motorized like uh yeah kind of like scooter moped cool Um, yeah, so man. when did the interest in clothes come? Did it come as like you were into clothes and you got into design or is it like the other way around? Um, yeah, I think that's a really good question, actually. So um, I would say the interest in clothes for me started very young. So I was I was born and raised in, in northern Virginia. And like many people around like my generation and age, like I obviously like I was super inspired by the Neptunes, like, like, <laughs> like, I, and uh, um, 
Yeah, so like I would say my, my introduction into clothing um, really came through music and culture. So it's it's where my my start for 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 the like love of love and clothing and um, yeah started. So yeah, I would say it's through there. So like, at what point did you make the hop from like band tees to now like three layer taped Gore Tex? Or like, what was the journey <laughs> in between that? Oh, that's a super interesting question. Um, I, I would say honestly, my transition from that to where I am now is really based on like where I'm living and my lifestyle. So for example, I, I think I learned in my first couple of months, like in Amsterdam, that like my clothing that I brought from North America or the States was just like literally not functional whatsoever because my lifestyle in the States was literally hopping out of the house and hopping into a car or hopping out of the house and maybe walking as far as like down the street and then into a car. <laughs> <laughs> so my, 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 yeah, my style changed quite a lot here because I like, right when I got to Amsterdam, I was on a bike almost every single day. And here, if you, if you've ever um, visited, it pretty much rains like 80% out of the year, like not even hard rain. It's just like consistently raining and you're always on a bike. Um, so my, my style changed a bit, like just to like versatility, like being able to like um, still look reasonably like presentable, like when you get off the bike and when you're going to, yeah, wherever you need to go. Man, that sounds like the two worst parts of like Vancouver and Seattle, like merged together. Yep. Yeah, I would say I would say it's, it's super similar to uh, Vancouver and Seattle. Um, just the fact that like, but on top of that, everyone also like bikes. It's just like the lifestyle. So most of the time, if you don't come correct, you're just gonna show up soaked. And that I learned that the hard way the first couple of months, just like showing up everywhere soaked. Showing sure. <laughs> <laughs> just everywhere. It doesn't matter. Like going to dinner or or even on the way to the gym or or to the studio, etc. You're just wet always if you're not prepared. That's funny. I, I feel like people in Toronto are like optimized in the other sense. Like for those who are like into the same stuff we are, right? It's like on yeah. the day it rains, you're the one guy that's not soaked. But that only happens like once a year. So it's not that big of a deal, right? But you're like prepared for 365 days of the week, which is like such overkill, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, in, in Toronto, like, for example, like, I, I think even like being prepared for like the harsh winters is already maybe really great because here the the winters are harsh but only because of the wind so mm -hmm. it's even harder like if there is the wind it cuts quite quite harsh but then there's rain and etc on top of that as well so you also don't want something so heavy gotcha no that makes sense yeah. I, I think it's really interesting that like your lifestyle you're i think one of the first people whose lifestyles really inform and justify the clothes they need i feel like there's some like a million biker commuter brands where it's like we have four-way stretch pants and all that right but like yeah. half of their consumers just don't bike. But like it's that romanticization of like I could bike in that that people really love. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I have some funny like stories actually. Like when I when I first moved to Amsterdam, like my first thirty, what was it like? My first thirty minutes on a bike, I was crossing like a bunch of tram tracks. Like you know, <laughs> like I'm not used to any of those, and and my wheel got caught into the tram track, and I just like ate ate it like in the oh, middle yeah. of this like six-way intersection and then like you know that's like kind of my first introduction to amsterdam and then later on you know i i 
I was wearing quite like wider pants that were maybe not as like equipped for the bike and it would just get caught in the gear and then you would just get stuck or, or, you know, like you would learn, you kind of learn based on like, you know, your everyday commuting just anywhere through the city for say work or not work and, and your, yeah, my, my fashion and, and, and yeah, clothing has really been equipped for all of that. What are the brands and what are the items you're into these days that like helps you survive? the harsh answer down. <laughs> yeah, good good one. Um I would say the main the main one is that like not not just because I, I work at at, at Bybota, but like before I started at Bybota, I was already a, a ginormous fan of like what Samuel and the design team there was was doing. Um uh, my favorite which I, I I still wear till this day, like almost I would say it's my most worn pant since I've lived in Amsterdam is um, the long short from like the spring summer 2019 at Bybota, which is like the Gore-Tex in the front and then a very lightweight knit in the back. And I think it's the most versatile pair of pants that like I've ever worn. And, and I think I can't really wear anything else besides that pant like in Amsterdam, because I'm, when I'm on the bike, the, the water, if it rains, will just go off the, the front of it and then it'll just quick dry and then it i just have the the bible to knit which is like super breathable and comfortable on the on the backside. so it's yeah i would say that's number one have you talked to samuel like i'm curious what the intended use case of that short was because it sounds perfect for cycling right now right it was that's that was the intention actually <laughs> so it was amazing like um and and actually like uh with Bybota, uh during that time being the one of the first labels to be able to use like Gore Infinium like together with another material, like mm -hmm. I think that it was like the perfect use case for it as well, and I loved it because I was on the bike almost like every day. Um, so I think it was it was just it was just amazing. And then on top of that, like uh, in the summer, um, I I just wear my Valens like Seikant uh, shorts all Ooh. the time just because of the side zips that i can like put a bunch of of my shit into and then just be on the bike like super breathable so like i would say yeah those two are kind of like my yearly like i i keep coming back to those like regularly actually gotcha yeah no i i feel like secants are like a, that crowd favorite just because they're so versatile and it's yeah. like you know i feel like every brand's trying to do athleisure these days but like Arcteryx and Valence just does it right because it doesn't feel like a Gymshark short, right? But it still has a performance of like all you'd expect from like Lululemon or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. And like I, I, I go to the forest in Amsterdam or the beach all the time with, 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 my, with my dog and, and also my, my partner. And, and I think it's so versatile that I could just like go be in the city and then kind of be out in nature. And it, it's just versatile in that sense and also on the bike at the same time so it just fits everything that i need that i needed to do in yeah, in amsterdam that's super sweet so what's the jacket you're rocking for these long commutes um so for example um right now i've been wearing oh, what's the name of it again it's the i have like the rust color like valence uh, uh the one with the uh, like the bomber looking one yeah the bomber looking one the nemus yeah, the Nemus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, um, I got this like Nemus off of like the Dutch eBay for like fifty bucks. Wait, what's I the Dutch eBay? 
It's called Marktplatz. <laughs> okay. Market, market. It just means marketplace. But like, I, I, I just bought it from this, uh, this person who was like just getting rid of their closet. I got it for like fifty. I just needed like something a bit breathable, like for spring and summer. But it's kind of become like my daily wear. I just wear that, and then also I have um, like a, a white mountain mirroring, like three layer Gore-Tex jacket from like twenty fifteen that I've also been rocking on top of that as well. So many different layers that I bring out and off and, and, uh, uh, packable into my bag, just like depending on what the weather is. Cause also, uh, in spring, I, I would say all year round, it's just, you get all four seasons in one day, it could hail and then it could rain and then it could be sunny and then it could be wet. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's unpredictable here. It, it sounds like Gore-Tex marketing is like wet dream of like the ideal climate where the, like the 1% of the world that actually needs this type of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's the interesting part because, like, in like spe specifically in North Holland here in uh, here in Amsterdam, it's so freaking flat. So you you know, there, it, there, there's literally no mountain. Like, if it is or some sort of hill, it's man-made. It's so flat. We're under sea level. Um, but what you do get is just so much rain, and you're always on the bike. So yeah, I think it's it's. A lot of the hiking, more hiking heavy fashion choices or clothing choices may be a little bit overkill, but I think waterproof enough to be on the bike is like really perfect. If you're any, if you make any sort of thing related to that, it's perfect. No, that, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like in my mind, right? Like we all have way too much gear, I think, right? But like the most fun part about wearing your gear is when you actually wearing it for its intended use case or when it's actually necessary. Like wearing a shell every day is fine, but wearing a shell when it's like pouring outside or where you're hiking and the wind's crazy, that's really when you're like, oh, you know what? Like this actually makes sense. I'm not just like cosplaying in a bunch of like what rain, like rainproof jackets right now. Yeah, and it's also, I, I think the, the best thing about it is like not only is it like, like when when you're really being protected against the elements but also how it like molds and like how, how it becomes like worn out like there's like some some like dents here and there little scratches or i don't know it just becomes really yeah it, it becomes like a part of like the identity like the history of like what you've been through like in the outdoors yeah the patina of really use nice. right exactly exactly like actually wearing it instead you know instead of like worrying about like things getting dirty but actually like putting it to the test I feel like I'm super guilty of this. Like when I go skiing, I ski in like this, uh, like a perfect, like flagship, perfect condition Arteric shell. And I'm like, I know everyone look like, I look like a poser, right? It's like, this thing's meant for the back country, <laughs> but I'm just doing like groomer hills right now. I mean, I mean, honestly, man, if it, if it, you know, that like any sort of like, like that or, or jacket or anything, or piece of clothing can like encourage anybody to be outside. Then I say that it's, it's, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's I mean, how I justify it to myself at least. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's always a start, right? Like you started off like with that and then, you know, it's kind of like the entry point to making the outdoors a bit more accessible. Yeah. Yeah. On the topic of entry point, I'd love to know, like, I mean, you're the digital product director right now. How'd you get to where you are right now? And what does that really, what, what do you do? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I, I, so I would say my, my, I don't know, maybe, maybe we can start like about like my entrance, like into the industry first, like before Please. going into that, but like I, my, so my upbringing, I, I always had worked in, um, 
my interests have, have always been in, in, in where fashion also meets culture, where music and, and, and everything kind of divulges like together into one place. And um, during my studies in university, I, I went to school at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. And at that time, I mainly picked it. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the interesting thing is that like, I, I went there as a marine biology um, major. Interesting. Interesting. I applied like, like my college, like, like admissions when they were asking me like where, why I wanted to go there, I wanted to go there for marine biology and, um, it's by the water and it was close. Like it was far enough from where I, like three hours from where I grew up, um, South, uh, like far enough to be away from my parents and really do my own thing, but also close enough that I could still see them from time to time. But slowly like in my first semester i found out that i i hated to <laughs> like i hated being i don't know doing research or being in a lab or the the classes were like super boring um and that's when i i i you know i was really trying to find myself like i i, I then went into like uh, information systems and technology mainly because uh my whole life I, i've always had this like affinity for for technology I was, you know, as, as a younger um, child, I like one of the hobbies that I had with my dad was like building my first ever computer together with him. And, and, you know, like, I, I thought that was like super fun and doing it together with my dad was just like even, even more fun. It was just like really great bonding time. Um, but I, I mainly chose that at like a really young age because I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but actually like, as I went through my degree and it, like my free time, while living in Norfolk, I, I started to learn that I had this like affinity for where technology and design really came together. And my studies was around product management. So it was it was really about like, okay, using technology as a service and a, and a product, but also in my free time, I was, um, yeah, together with my friends, like working on really great creative projects, like in music and, 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 and culture and, and everything kind of surrounding that time, uh, yeah, in the 757. Um, but yeah, and then after I, I, I graduated um, university, I, I started taking on um, this. Yeah, I've always been in the space where technology and uh, technology and design were, were, were always kind of coming together. So I, my first start was being a creative front ender. And I was working for a really small boutique studio in, in, in Washington, DC. And then when I moved to Amsterdam, I transitioned over to being a more of a, a product designer. So like, a, a, and like I said, like working on uh, shared mobility services or unique mobility services in Amsterdam. And later, like later on into that, I, I, I got, yeah, the, the, the opportunity to work for AKQA, which is a really uh, a large, uh, advertising experience design agency like uh, based in london but like across like many other cities that's the agency uh, gore-tex uses right say that again that's the agency gore-tex uses i think yeah so so akqa has, has worked with gore-tex for for a, a bit of their campaigns as well um yeah and and while while at akqa actually i really was able to work with some super, super talented creative directors and designers and art directors. And I think there was where it even came together, even like even closer, like everything that I that I did with with technology in my career and then everything that I did with uh, design in my career really coming into one place. 
and during my time there, I was able to work on, um, yeah, I was also able to work on some like really strategic, like UX or experience, uh, uh projects for Gore-Tex. I also worked on some briefs for, for Jordan. And then, um, my main, my main time there was really building, uh, together with the team, um, the global, uh, well, no, the European, uh, uh, Toyota and Lexus, like, uh, platform which was which was like a really great starting point because it was merging together the physical aspect of what Toyota, Toyota and Lexus and their experience offers also it where digital can enhance that and build that platform up so you were working on like their mobile site or like so i think uh well basically it was called the digital experience platform for Toyota and Lexus and what that was was basically to re-envision what the European um, yeah platform for those uh, for those two brands would be. So building what that platform would be serviced across like twenty plus different languages and markets all across Europe. Interesting. That's, so I guess this is like helping people experience the product, but digitally without like actually driving the car or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So so for example, one thing would be like. Uh, how could VR within a dealership through an iPad be some sort of experience or how can it enhance that uh, in-person experience? Also, if you can't make it to the dealership, how can your experience on the screen with the uh, yeah their products be even more enhanced? So thinking about how it can be immersive through digital means or how it can be also uh, how you can also learn about storytelling of where these, you know, the history of the vehicle or what, what it can do for your lifestyle, et cetera. Gotcha. Yeah. That lot of work sounds very similar to imagine the challenges you're trying to try and solve through like with by Bori create trying to be like, you know, how can I help someone experience a textile digitally without seeing like the 3d elevation or the texture like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically, yeah. How that led to by Boda was that, um, yeah, I've always really found myself in this 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 uh, this bridge between physical and and digital. And um, I had actually met the 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 founders of Byboda. Maybe even I met the CEO about a year before I joined um, Byboda. And during that moment when I had met him, he he really told me that he had this 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 um, this vision of what Byboda could become. So not being the label or this uh, innovation studio, but really transitioning into a, a, a textile platform. And at that moment, um, it was called TDK, which if you come from tech and SDK and, and calling it a TDK, um, it was just the concept of calling it a TDK. And you know, the idea was basically how could a, a digital platform digitize the textile industry? So, um, he had told me this about like a, a year ago and it was just like at, at that moment, like a concepting phase. And uh, a year later, um, I had reached back out again because um, the plans were starting to get ramped up. And I actually um, pitched to the founders kind of my concept of how this digital product would come about, but also how, how like my vision on top of their concept and also um, how the team could actually grow. So how, how the digital team could grow out of this concept and, and, and what could be the potentials of the platform and uh, what it means to hire more strategic and experienced thinkers and engineers all at the same time. So 
this happened uh, a year and a half ago now, almost two years. And uh, yeah, and this is where we're at now. Yeah. Yeah. Could you like tell us a bit more about the digital product team and like what you're focused on and, you know, the areas of your mandate? Yeah. So for, for myself, um, as a digital product director, um, I'm, I'm leading a team of uh, designers and engineers building Bible to Create, which is our textile uh, textile creation platform. And uh, what that means is basically the we are the team that's in charge of the, the 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 service that we are offering or the platform that we are offering to the market, which is digitally designing uh, your textiles and then being able to rapid sample it and then to produce on demand. What that means is that we're translating not only what uh, the years and years of innovation from from the Knit Lab and and uh, you know Bora's time at Eindhoven Design Academy and and also um, all of the innovations that the company has done, but also the fact that like how can we make knitting more democratized um, to the market? So how can anyone and anyone who wants to interact or learn about textiles can actually learn and educate themselves, but at the same time be able to design bespoke and uh, responsible textiles. I, th I think there's a lot of interesting things you mentioned there, all of which I have questions about. Like one part, I guess, is just, you know, democratizing the platform, right? And just help reducing the barrier to entry for textile design. Like how specifically do you envision the platform will communicate to users about, you know, what can you do with textile design and like teach them that vocabulary of yeah so i think the that can be dissected into um, multiple different layers right so for example you can look at the textile industry which is like the supply chains all the way from the raw material to the finished product but then you can also look at just knitting as a whole so how text you know how our textiles are made um and then Basically, if you look at each of them, what it means to democratize or educate someone of this is that like knowing that in the current industry that those two different factors are very inflexible. So basically, if we if you look at, you know, say the, the, the clothing you're wearing now or the clothing I'm wearing now, we have basically a very surface level understanding of like where all where the material comes from or where it's flown or its carbon footprint. Also, how many hands has it has it passed? All those transactions. Um, so I, I think it's really understanding that landscape, and and I think most uh, most people either don't want to because it's just super complex, and it, and it hasn't been. No one's actually worked on making it more understandable and more accessible. And then others just let's say others in the textile industry just uh, choose to ignore it. And because it's it's an industry and they're there to make money, right? So completely ignore the impacts of, of what they're making. So when when we say democratize and educate, it's really letting people know that well, in ways it's it's just how can we make that 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 information more accessible? How how can we make it understandable? And and we're doing that through create. And, yeah, and I'm 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 really excited about where that's gonna go. One part you talk about is this idea of transparency, right? Having people understand, you know, who who's involved in the process of making these textiles and, you know, going from source A to point B. I feel like a lot of companies do that for the purpose of marketing, right? Like Everlane is very transparent about 
who where their factories are and the cost of shipping and the fuel and all that, right? But to that end, it's just marketing. It doesn't actually tangibly change the product and the product kind of like already exists. So whether you choose to buy it or not, the impacts are kind of like laid out. From your perspective, what is the Bibori like perspective on all of this like sustainability and transparency, right? Like why do you care? Yeah, so I think the word um I, I really don't like to use the word sustainability. I, mean, I find myself like getting choked up sometimes when I say it. I think the best word for it and, and, um, is really responsibility. So, for example, anything that is made or anything that you buy or consume is not sustainable because it is <laughs> like some, some products or services are more sustainable than others but it's not so black and white. It's not that it's something is sustainable or not sustainable. So I think the best word is really responsibility. Like, do you, do you know, or is your conscience, you know, leading you to make the best choice? And are you educated on, on the products or services that you're buying? And basically I think also the stance should be that you're working to do the best possible thing that you can do to, put out the best possible product. So I think it's never, it's never the fact that like, I think if you want to make something that is sustainable, you probably just shouldn't make anything, <laughs> you know? So, you know, and, and as, and as, um, but as humans, you know, we, we are makers and we are shakers and we are creatives. So I think uh, humankind will always continue to innovate and make. So how can we enable or empower others to make better products with that sort of uh, uh, mentality in mind that it's not just about uh, something that's sustainable or let's let's use your example with with Everlyn like you know kind of showing kind of this this small micro or let's say yeah a small micro part of the supply chain but one one thing that's interesting and in, is that like clients or 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 not even clients but just when we when when people want to talk about sustainability they they basically say like hey can you offer like what is your most sustainable like what's your 100 sustainable textile for yeah it's like it, it just doesn't work that way it, it's not they they want a sticker they want that little label on their product description to say 65 percent sustainable yeah it's just like a hook right? you know and and we can't we can't deny that the industry is you know, most of these brands are really looking for a hook or for storytelling. So for example, if these brands are looking for storytelling, I think that is, uh, you know, and great, like it's not, we should see it as an opportunity. Like a lot of these brands are looking for opportunity to tell, to do better storytelling. So to do better storytelling, they need to be educated and conscious of the choices that are making. So I think through Bible to create and, and, you know, any of these brands who will creators or brands that will use the platform will know from when they start clicking around and digitally designing all the way from rap, like rapid sampling to bulk production, they'll know all of the steps that will take to go into their bespoke textile. So it, it's really building upon the education to understand what it means to even make a textile, right? Whereas most brands would just buy these pre-existing textiles, like say in a catalog. Yeah, that makes sense. I think giving brands like a sense of agency over what they can control and understanding the impacts of what they control is really important. Like that covers, I guess, the education piece, right? How would you go and overcome the gap of like now going from a brand X wanting to make an Earth Day tea to now incorporating incorporating this into their everyday practices? So, you know, 
uh, not sustainability, but responsibility is part of their key design philosophy? Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's a, that's a super interesting question. And, and like, let, let's really, um, I think the best way to answer that is, is just like anyone else that, that is working in a space of innovation is that we are within capacity and our capabilities trying to do the best that we can to make the best positive impact. So I think that's the first step is, is what can we affect within our capacity and our resources? So the first step is that we know that we won't be able to solve, you know, let's say global warming, or, or it's not just our responsibility to, to, to save the, the planet. Uh, but also it's just not our responsibility to, to, to change, to change the textile industry. So the, the thing is, is really, what can we, what can we affect within, you know, our direct community and how can we empower others to, or, or maybe link others or link people to, to us and them to make better impact. So how can we do it together? Um, I think that's, that's the first step if that answers your question. I really like that answer. It feels really genuine because I like I work in tech and something I'm really sick of every time I do an interview or I talk to other people is that narrative of, um, I guess, tech in general has a tendency to fetishize innovation and more disruption. So, you know, I, I really like this idea of like, we're going to work within what we know and what we can affect, not we're just going to shift the market fundamentally and then hope to God something works, right? So yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and, and maybe, I mean, you, you bring up a really interesting point and now it sparks something in my head is that like, so for example, if we take something as traditional as the textile or fashion industry is that they, they work in seasons, right? So for example, a brand or someone who's building out their line is already two seasons ahead in in their in their um, their concept or wherever they are in their phase. So what that means is, right now in 2022, they are already working on what the output of 2024 will be without understanding. I mean, none of us are are are, are psychics or like future. You know, we, we can't predict the future. So that in in a way is basically the because of the supply chain, brands and creators have to think in that way. They're forced to have to make something that will exist in, in two years time just because of the seasonality. But it, it basically that there is no guarantee if it will work or not. You're basically trying to like squeeze a whole bunch of crap into like this really tight time timeline at the end of the day, right? And if you take that and 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 compare it to where we are at working in maybe more experienced design or or more the the the, the tech industry, is that like we work in, in in iterations, right? So if we work in iterations, we're basically doing these sprints that we can actually get feedback and learn and then pivot or not. So failing fast and then actually celebrating failures as learnings and then pivoting and then going more. So it's, it's a bit instead of like that, that huge sort of rise in, 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 in progression, it's basically just a stepping stone. So every single step that you make is like adding up to the bigger picture. So I, I really think that the shift in the textile industry is going towards the middle ground of where fashion is currently now and where the tech, the tech industry or how 
yeah, the tech industry work. So very much that middle ground. So the bridge between both of those. You bring up a great point. I think the fashion feedback loop is way too long right now, right? Like if you look at just Valence as a classic example, Pant X gets released and it takes them two years to correct it because everything in between has already been designed. And during that time, the seams keep ripping and breaking. But I think like beyond that, right? Like it's the issue I think with the industry is fitting a product to a need, right? Like I feel like very much the product is first designed, then they discover the need that the product solves. And you, the reason they do that is because the timelines are so long and they can't like iterate fast. How does Bybori like solve that iteration process? Because you guys are still very much season defined. I know like edition 11 is, you know, going to cover all of 2022, but how do you guys like address that feedback and that iteration cycle? Yeah. So, I mean, I can't speak too much on the iterations because I'm more on the create side, but what I can speak on is like, if you look at our entire journey as a label, so going from edition one all the way till our you know, our, our newest edition, edition 11, the styles, ba basically the styles you can see, like if you put the, the images side by side, so let's just take the, the, the long short and seeing how that later became the tapered crop pants. And then that, like basically that progression, you can start to see that by Boda's innovation is kind of the synergy between the iterative design like mentality and then also the traditional it's the you know the marriage of the of, of of the of both of them so basically you can see this progression of many similar silhouettes coming back but but it's not so that every single season is just like blowing your it's not like we're reinventing like you know this is a new season we're totally going to reinvent this um it's just the fact that every season you you basically see little tweaks here and there with with very um, very unique silhouettes, but you see those tweaks from season to season to season. And it, it's how we also work with our textile. So not just um, the silhouettes in themselves, but actually how do we better our proprietary textiles and make those even better through knitting techniques over time. Interesting. I think part of the fun of Ibora is like that incremental gain and that incremental change, right? Like it's similar to why people love acronym because it's the same consistent models, but every season they get tweaked. Like there's like four P23s now and similar for you guys, like, you know, there's a silhouette people love, but rather than just releasing the same style every year and calling it like the permanent collection, it changes every season, right? So it doesn't feel stale. Exactly. And, and also uh, fashion, uh, I mean, how fashion works is that like pretty much, you know, a new season, like say a design team is done with their new season. They're like, yep, we're all done with this season. How are we like, like, what's the concept of the next season? And then it's like, okay, now the next season is we're, you know, it's inspired by X. It's the newest thing ever. It's the best thing since last time we've worked on it, you know? So I don't know, a, a bit of that needs to be taken away. It doesn't have to be yeah, it just doesn't have to be always so new or, or mind blowing or it does it, you know, it's not everything. Can you imagine every year? It's just like new this, it's more new every single time. It's just really building upon the fact that, uh, I mean, you can tell it's a system, right? Like you, people are just kind of working in this system that, that, that they're just a part of 
without looking into how they can actually change that system. Yeah, it feels like traditional decision making where it's very top down, right? It's like someone at the top is like, this is the direction we're taking for the season without validating anything. And then all the downstream teams are forced to figure out how can we work within these constraints to deliver what they want, right? Like you're creating something for someone, but no one knows what they actually want. Also, for example, I I, I think a lot of um, a lot of people in the industry don't necessarily understand what validation means, right? So validation doesn't necessarily mean that you've done some sort of like, I don't know, you did a bit of like some experiments here and there, but I, I, I truly believe that like validation and true research is understanding who you're making any sort of product or service or solution for, and does it actually benefit them and add value? So it's not just like really looking at say, let's take any product that's made. You don't just really analyze that product. And it's like, how can that product be better in the next round? Well, it's like, no, it's like what people need to start doing is like, how is that product being used by this, this demographic of, of users or whoever, and how can we make that better in the long, in the long, so not going from just the product outwards, but actually looking at the consumers back into the product. So more of the outside looking in perspective instead of the fashion more inside looking out you know this we're presenting the newest of this or you know we need to have more of the outside looking in perspective no that's great i, I feel like you know like the core mandate of any product team or really just anyone in the company is to de-risk projects right and like from a product perspective is to de-risk will consumers use this product right how does your team go about doing like validation for features yeah that's great um yeah so i so what we what we've um, we recently released uh, we did a, a really big launch with Create this year and and I'm super proud of it because it's it's what we've as a company and also as a leadership have spoken about you know as as like a, a dream for 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 at least like two years now and so I think the first one is that now within Bible to Create you can actually while you're looking at what textile you want to design with, you can learn about what resources you'll save compared to a conventional textile. So say you choose a Bible to textile, you can basically see how much water emissions and electricity that that textile would save per kilo compared to something more like similar to it outside in the market. So we like our yeah our sustainability researcher has done pretty much uh, a, a research to gather from our yarn suppliers, our factories, our mills, and 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 many other partners to to really quantify these numbers. And what's really interesting is through that sort of input, uh, my team we ran a, a design sprint where we asked. Uh, a number of creatives that fit, uh, you know, our, our our personas that use the platform, and we were really asking them, like, from a very high level, like, what do they care about? Like, what does sustainability mean for them? When would they actually buy textiles or products that are unsustainable? And actually, a really great research came out of it was that we found that consumers or creators are willing to actually buy 
unsustainable things blindly if it's super unique. So can you imagine, it's like, you're willing to throw away a lot of your values if it's so unique that you are one of the many few that have it or say like, you know, I have this and that's what makes me unique. But through the research as well, we learned that if you ask somebody like, if they like, what do they, what do they want to learn more about? They actually want to learn more about how to reduce overproduction. So you can kind of see how this research in ways like the creators are kind of contradicting themselves. So, so like you, like use it as a, a, a train of thought is that for example, with this research, we were able to actually not prove, but at least a good feeling or validate a feeling that we have or an intuition that like in the very beginning, creators really care about overproduction and want to learn more about overproduction. But when it comes to a product that's super unique, they're willing to throw away all of their values for it. <laughs> so it's super interesting, right? So is the next step validating like in the apps or given to equally scarce or unique products, right? What the price elasticity is to be like, I'm willing to pay more, X amount more for this textile to be sustainable or like more responsible than the other one? Yeah, so so I think where, where the platform, where Bible to Create has matured is that like, if we're talking about the democratization of the textile industry, that every creator or user has the, you know, they can make any choice that they want as long as they're conscious of it, or we encourage them to, to, to learn more about what it will take to go into their textiles. It basically means that we, I mean, we can suggest a more, you know, a less impactful textile, but we will never twist your arm and say that you're a horrible person for choosing something that's maybe a little bit more economy that is actually more harmful, you know, based on these three metrics, right? So being a platform that will that we hope to democratize the textile industry, you have to pretty much offer the spectrum of textile choices, you know, you know, things that are a little bit more luxurious or maybe things that are super special that comes with a cost or comes with a certain sort of impact. But also at the same time, you need to really offer things that are a, a bit more affordable or maybe in the middle part of the market. So. I think through a lot of these, you know, the research that we've done as a, a digital plot, like digital product team is that we're learning that democratization really means that you don't just service like your, your user base, but actually how do you work towards servicing the textile industry as a whole? Because like, for example, a textile that is say 60 euros per meter is very expensive and only services like an X amount of, of, of um, but also if you talk to maybe other people who work in the industry, they maybe buy textiles that come when, you know, the yarn, yarn and raw materials come from say uh, China that maybe even get offered to them for maybe 13 euros per meter. So you can start of like, you, you can kind of see, you know, this sort of how price and, and, lead times, supply chain dynamics. And within the platform, you can choose from the spectrum. So there's price, you can find more economic prices, but then you can also compare how it will, you know, what's the impact of your textile if you were to produce it? So how much water you would save, how much electricity, how much emissions, et cetera. 
Yeah, I, I feel like that's one of those like key product design challenges, right? Like enabling choice, but like, you know, the company clearly has a preferred outcome. And I think like from your perspective, it is for people within their financial means to buy the more responsible textile, but without, you know, forcing someone's arm or creating like really obtrusive things where it's like, oh, you chose the cheapest textile, you get a pop hole model saying you're a bad person, you're killing the planet. Yeah. Just trying to like figure out how to do that is like one of the toughest challenges with design, I think. Yeah, and and I mean, like like I said, like it's 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 about it's about responsibility, right? So how can you hold the creator responsible because they they are responsible, you know, the the creators or the designers or let's say the the material specialists that work at you know we were just talking about Arcteryx and Valence, like those you know these sorts of archetypes of designers are in control of what these products will be so they are responsible to make sure that they make the best possible products that will last you know and you know will that will last as as long as it will make you know as long as it will it will last for and also that it's fit for purpose that that is their responsibility not the consumer's responsibility you know the consumers have a different responsibility if you buy it i mean you better use it until it's like torn into shreds right and and um but it all starts from all the way from the raw material so if it's not fit for purpose then there's a reason why maybe somebody wears it once or twice and it doesn't fit their needs yeah i I really like that approach for you know like the product designers like responsibilities right like to me like the part of how I justify all the silly clothes I buy, like to which we all have too much of, is the covetability of it, right? This idea of like after I'm no longer want this silly Jill Sanderty, someone else will buy it and wear it for their rest of their lives. And if not, there's always someone else who will want it and it'll never end up in the landfill. So I think that's kind of like the cool part about like well designed clothes. Like not only is it durable, but like people want to use it, right? Because there's no point of making well-built garments if no one's ever going to put it to its use. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's desirability is an interesting, interesting topic because like in this in this space of let's let's just say this space of where techware is going or Gorp Core or whatever those terms are, <laughs> like you know, it, it's I've never been the person to be say jealous that somebody else has some other product compared to what you know I, I don't have that product so i'm i'm jealous and i've never really been that person so like I, I i think what's interesting is that that shift of desirability needs to be we need to basically start flexing how responsible we are right like that that's that's the new flex if if, if people want to flex right like so what what are what are you doing to let's say prolong the 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 life cycle or the life of your products or how are you basically helping to enable communities to do the same or to talk about these sorts of topics so i think that should be the shift in how this culture is going yeah do you have any like ideas around that because to me i think like making something sexy from the sense of like oh this only use this uses a third of the water is really hard for me to do maybe i just like lack like the vocabulary to express that but to me what's really cool is a jacket that's handed down two generations and it still looks cool and it's still in one piece yeah like i think that's the sustainability or the responsibility part that's really cool like i think Arcteryx does a great job of that where you have these decade-old jackets and they look they still look cool and they're still like functioning as they're intended 
Yeah, I mean, I'll. I think the first thing that comes to mind, based on what you're what you're asking, is like, a, I'll, I'll go back to the research, right? Like one of the creators that we had said that how she keeps things interesting is that she'll she'll start to customize the things that she already has, right? So desirability and sort of like people want things because yes, they are desirable, but also people want specific things to uh, wear because it communicates who they are or communicates a, a sort of subculture or a community that they are a part of. But also at the same time, they wear things because they either want to fit in or to show that they are unique. So for example, one of the, the during the, the research that we were doing is that she, she one of the uh, users, she said that how she keeps things interesting or gives things new life or, or shakes things up is that she starts to customize them. So for example, a sweater could have, the buttons could be fine, but then she'll just say like, hey, you know, I, I wanna just have this little project of my own and I'll just, see how I can replace these buttons to make it as unique as possible, right? Or say you have, uh, you know, maybe like a three-layer Gore-Tex jacket from Arc'teryx that's just completely beat up. You can still customize them in a way, right? You could, you can see like people are dyeing them or maybe patching them up or just customizing them in, 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 in ways. I think you can give things second life that will still make you look as unique as you want to be yeah i think that's my favorite part like on the topic of Arc'teryx, like what they're doing right like their artist series was probably like the coolest thing they've done in years like just giving people brand new jackets that otherwise would end up at the outlet and letting them as you said like breathe new life into them right like the sean one with like all the dyed atoms and betas that was so cool like that's what i really enjoyed yeah it had this like sort of gradient um going and also like the their their puffer jackets like the really dipped dyed like puffer jackets with the yeah, different yeah, gradients yeah. yeah those were sick man like yeah exactly so how how can you give things second life like for example i have a couple of hats here and there that have stains like all over them you know like that's a nice little fun project like i have some like uh what is it persimmon dyes that i bought um a couple of like years ago that i could use to like dye this and like make it new again right so so these sorts of projects like how can we help to let people know that that's actually an option some people don't even think that like if you tell them they'll be like oh wait yeah i guess i could i guess i, I could do something like that right or instead of just throwing it away so do you feel like that's kind of the like, so this is really to do, easy to do at the individual level, right? Like I have old sweaters, I'm gonna cut them up and do whatever. How do you apply that at like the enterprise or corporate level? Like Bybori has a bunch of old stock. How do you make that sexy again? Yeah, so um, I mean, if we look at a, a very, um, a very volatile, not even volatile, but really complex supply chain, one of the interesting topics is second life. Right. So with Baibora being mainly a textile or we are a textile platform, we are helping brands and creators make textiles from the raw material all the way till it's produced onto a roll. Right. And and depending on um, certain clients, we also obviously help them turning those things into product. So. 
But one of the interesting things is is second life, right? Once something is made and it is either, you know, most of the time, like you're saying, is like it ends up in a landfill or it gets burnt because of intellectual property or whatever, right? Right. It, it, it's a, you know, uh, I think there there are ways to help these brands understand that there's an impact. Like, imagine like you could make you can make a textile 200 meters of like a textile and you could complete it, you know, it could completely go wrong and you could throw it away or you produced a bunch of garments and it completely goes wrong and you throw them away as well. Like, uh, yeah, if you were to let someone know that you're literally throwing, like imagine you're just flushing this amount of water, right. Or, or you're, you're, you're doing this. And, and if you, if you make those numbers, I think a lot of things that are happening now is those those numbers or those metrics are just not understandable. So, for example, it's really about the accessibility of the of, of the information. So if you let's say, for example, if I told you the I'm just using an example, if you threw away your hoodie right now that you're wearing instead of repairing it, you're you're basically throwing away 200 liters of water. You know, I, I don't, I don't know that. I don't know that. But if I, if I just gave you that sort of number, you would probably second guess that, that decision, right? You, but then if you were to destroy your, your, your hoodie, at least you would know you're conscious, right? Like, I, I know, I know also that like, I, I maybe cons- at times consume too much meat here and there, but, you know, or, or eat too much red meat, but, you know, without, if I just blindly not look at what that impact is and I just continue to go on, then I wouldn't feel, yeah, I wouldn't feel happy with myself. Like, you know, but, but I think it should be the curiosity of consumers and textile makers to basically understand what their impact is. So I I think there needs to be a change. Yeah. uh, I I think like I asked you this question earlier on the podcast of like, you know, how do you go from, knowledge to action and i think like that's the answer right there right the first part is creating that curiosity so not only is it like creating the knowledge but having someone be curious for that knowledge but then i guess the second part which is a much harder part is how do you enable people to make better choices right yeah like throwing away that roll of fabric that's a tricky one yeah so maybe maybe to 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 make it uh, more tangible so with this new impact feature that we have on Bible to create. So say you're a creator and you're on the platform and you're looking to design a textile for your spring summer collection and you're looking for textiles and you found the best one based on what it what we suggest you that it, it, it's best for. Also the composition of the textile, where the yarns come from, who is the yarn supplier, etc. On top of that, we give you metrics on how much water, electricity, and emissions it can save, right? So if you, let's just take water, it will probably give you that this this textile will save you 200,000 liters of water, like per kilo compared to the conventional textile. But we know that that number is really useful for let's say like a supply chain manager or a uh, someone who works more in logistics to make better choices. But we actually even put equivalents in there. So we actually 
built-in algorithms in the platform to make it more accessible. So we can translate it to that will be, you know, that that amount of liters will equal X amount of cups. So then if you take electricity, we will even tell you that would save you this X amount of iPhone charges. So, so you can already start to imagine like per kilo of the textile you're going to make, how many phone charges that you would save based on the electricity that would be used. And then the other one is emissions. So how far does the car go? You can equate that to how many kilometers a car could go on a, a charge. So you can then start to basically, how, how can we make those impact metrics more accessible, but also tangible for people to understand because kilowatt hours of what, like most people wouldn't know. You'd just be like, yeah, it's a nice number, right? <laughs> Whatever. That's a big number. That's a big number. You really don't have yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think visualization is definitely like the biggest part, right? Like telling someone this can fill up that many bathtubs. Exactly. That's when you start being worried, right? Yeah. And also like, for example, you can use equivalents. Like uh, if you choose this textile, it will equate to spend, you know, to wasting 60 showers. You know, there's like on average, like how much water you like a human uses when they shower. So there's ways to make it more, um, yeah, to make it more tangible, right? To make it more tangible. And, um, but people really need to see these things, right? That's also a part of making the best possible, or let's say what you were saying, like a, a more desirable product is also the fact that it, you know, the impact of it as well. Yeah. I think it's when you start getting to football field comparisons, that's when people really start to pay attention. Yeah. It's, it's quite interesting. It's like, if you can make these more, um, yeah, just making it really understandable or using equivalents. People just understand immediately. The only other things that are kind of on my mind is just where the Create platform and where the company is going. Because to me, when Create came out, that felt very much like the Model 3 Tesla moment, right? Instead of you guys are a super cool, small skunkworks project that does custom work for these cool brands, you guys are really proven that this is an idea that works at scale. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so I think uh, when I first started at Vibora, you know, we were, you know, we were working on a very much a proof of concept uh, leading into how can we formulate that proof of concept into a minimum viable product. So how can we turn it into, you know, the the, the first iteration of the go to go to market? And I think what's what's really great is that during our whole life cycle of building Bible to create, even when it was a proof of concept or, you know, the additions is a proof of concept of create, right? All of the projects we've mm. worked on before was also a proof of concept of create. So if you think about That's a great way of thinking about it. Yeah, like the additions in in, in the additions is basically the, the the proof of concept that we can go from raw material all the way to finished product through our proven supply chain, right? Our, our, our basically our, our answer to a more responsible textile industry and, and democratized supply chain. So our internal team was able to make, you know, these choices, right? These different choices that later became the Bible to create platform, which we were also able to run beta 
and pilots with our trusted clients um, that were willing to be the first to use the platform to build out their products. So, you know, really kudos to them to, and, and really exciting that, um, you know, that, that we found uh, such great partners. But now that we have just done this really big launch uh, within this year and opening it up to a wider group of creators, what really comes next is opening that up even further. So not just for folks that make textiles or that will make textiles that, that will become products, but actually how can we get more creators or new generation of creators to use textiles as a, a medium for the change in the industry that we need? So for example, how can we actually build communities or not even build communities, but support existing communities of folks that are wanting to change the textile industry and giving that stage to them to, to, to do that. So for example, if there are two different uh, uh, yarn suppliers that are, let's say in, in, in a sense, in the current system competitors, how can they actually work together to make a, a better textile industry? So how can they support each other? And, you know, if, if money is an issue, there's still, there is money, there's plenty of money to go around, but actually, um, you know, there, there shouldn't, it isn't a textile game, you know, like it's not that there are winners and losers. Like, you know, we all lose if we don't do anything. You mentioned earlier that create launched as a beta yeah and so is that how kind of like those collaborations came about like with bmw with dm would you guys just give create to them let them create the textile and then come back and then design the product yeah so take everything up until this previous launch of like it officially launching um as like the you know a showcase to the world that like our our partners and you know, our, our trusted partners and, and brands that we've worked with are basic, we're basically using Create um, to really get their ideas out there. So whether it be through the digital platform or in other means of like wanting to interact and, and help us build a platform for the, you know, for the future of the textile industry. I, yeah, I, I think that that's really exciting that, you know, a lot of these trusted brands are, are willing to, to change their way of working and, and, and wanting to actually seek out new ways of working, which is great. And, and I think, I mean, just to add a bit, maybe, it, maybe it's off topic, but like, for example, the, the, you know, the, the textile industry is so closed. It's like, it's like for the, the, the textile industry pretty much is, can be summed up that like for the very few elites that they they profit so much off of it and everything all the way until the consumer is basically losing whether it's through monetary or impact or social social issues yeah it it, it is a it's an industry that was a system that was designed for the the, the elite yeah pretty much for the elite so for example the the how can we make it for everyone? You know, how, how can, how can you actually, let's say, want, say you're, you're somebody that wants to start the, the next 
and wonder, or say you want some, you know, somebody who wants to start the next biggest thing, you don't need to let's, you know, like pretty much know somebody that knows somebody that then will, will hopefully introduce you to somebody, which then later becomes one factory, which, and then that point you have no choice. You basically have one choice and yeah, and, and, and I, I just really believe that it shouldn't be that way. I, I believe that if you have an idea or a concept or any sort of entrepreneurial spirit that you can go to a place where it's just an open book, you know, and, and, and you can make it as you, as you want it to be. So, for example, any brand can use Bible to create and make it themselves. And I think that's really interesting because all of the things that you see coming out now, like let's let's take what we did with BMW or what we did with Rafa, looks nothing like our editions, which is pretty sick, you know. Like you, if you know that that is a bi-bordic, like bi-bordic technology, then you know, right? Like, you know, but if you don't, then it's it's a textile and it's fit for purpose for their needs. And I think that's something really special is that anything that comes out of it will be the expression of that creator. Yeah, to me, this definitely feels like the new way and the better way to do collaboration, right? Like this idea of, because I feel like we've talked about this off camera too. Like I'm very sick of the textile industry too, just because of the decisions it kind of forces you into. Like I had an appointment with Maharam to try and buy some blinds. I was like, oh, I want this textile. They're like, oh, you have to be Herman Miller to buy it because we only sell it by thousand yard. It was like, okay, what can I buy? And there's like these shitty three samples I can get. And that to me is really frustrating. And I imagine that's very similar to how like collaborations happen with like these large brands where like, okay, we want it. Like if you're working with Nike, like we're going to do a blazer this year. These are the leathers you could choose from. And you know, you, you don't really enable choice. And that's kind of the frustration. Yeah. And, and I mean, to, to go off of your example is like the reason why you're frustrated is that you don't like they're not giving you a, a why, you know, they're not giving you why you can't get that textile that is only, you know, that, you know, that's only available for Herman Miller or whatever, or, or for any other brand. They're, they're not, you know, Maharam is not giving you a reason why. And, and if you ask, they probably would give you a bit of like a, I don't know, they, they, they probably wouldn't tell you why. It's just you have these choices. they don't have a reason why. Yeah. It, 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 someone just made the choice that this is the reason why. It's probably even the fact that uh, it's a monetary thing is that you probably low quantities, right? Like, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so that's the other thing is that it, it's not, uh, it doesn't make, like, in like if you use your situation, it doesn't make you feel like you can interact with that supply chain. And if you and if you feel like you can't interact with that supply chain, how would you feel that you could affect it in any way? It feels you don't. Yeah, you don't you feel disenfranchised fundamentally, right? Yeah, it's like behind closed doors. It's just like, oh yeah, well, you know, we we can offer you these four options, but uh, if you don't take these options, then you know, better luck somewhere else. And then you're like, okay, cool, like thanks for your help. And then you already kind of feel a bit deterred to it. So. I don't know. I think I think we we I think the industry just needs to share a bit more, you know, and and there shouldn't be so much gatekeeping and you know and all these like silos that have been built up over generations and generations. Exactly. So we've talked about persona or you've mentioned personas earlier, right? And we talked about creatives. For like I know 
creates a small platform right now. And I imagine you guys are definitely being a bit more selective of who you want to support just because you don't want to like support everyone. Who are those personas of like who is ideally using the platform? Yeah, um, I think this is the best time to really uh, mention that um, during the like during like what we're internally calling the beta phase of, of, of Bible to create, we, you know, to learn from not only our trusted partners, but also a group of creators from all different walks of life, uh, myself and the team, we, we initiated this, uh, this, um, this community called the trailblazers. So the first mm -hmm. groups of individuals, uh, from, from trusted clients to trusted designers, friends, and, and people that worked all across the industry to be the first to use Bible to create and actually to gain feedback on how they use it. What were they struggling? Actually, like it's, it's basically to learn what they were struggling with and how we could actually make it better. So any sort of, sort of failure that the customer, you know, not the customer, but the, the, any failure that the, the creators would have would be a huge learning for us because that's ways that we can make it even better. So, um, yeah, those personas are, yeah, you know, color material specialists all the way to product designers, shoe designers, garment designers, product managers, um, also like what's really great is like, you know, we even have copywriters in there, people who are, um, more community managers, people that actually want to learn more about the, the, the industry being able to actually use this platform that you don't have to be a, a designer that knows graphics or knitting to use the, the platform, but actually anybody and anyone can use it. So someone like yourself, you know, our aunties and uncles, our mothers and our fathers, <laughs> you know, we, they can use this platform to make what they have in their minds onto the platform. And yeah, by Bora will use uh, our years of knowledge in, in, in textile making to bring those samples to life. So interesting. Yeah. But right now it's specifically, yeah, graphic designers, visual designers, art directors, creative directors, um, color specialists, product designers, 3D garment designers, etc. Gotcha. So from what it sounds to me, you guys are spreading the net really wide, working horizontally, and then I guess kind of honing in on who it really resonates with and then like building features for that. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there's, there's, um, there's a lot that we can learn from not like, not per se the current textile industry, because I, I like, not that I know of, um, I mean, not to like pat ourselves on the back, but like, there's not anything in the market right now that looks or experiences like by Boda create. So, I mean, we, in ways like, and I say this to my team is that you might've worked at a previous company. So if I look at my designers and developers and engineers who are working on building by Boda create, like you could be working elsewhere and be, there'd be tons of inspirations there. Like, so if you work for Facebook, you can find tons of inspiration from many other social media, but like platforms, but with Bible to create, I mean, everything needs to be an inspiration because there is nothing out there that exists just like this. So, so 
you have to have that pioneering mindset to be able to to work in this space to build something that doesn't exist yet and and building the future of what we want it to be as well yeah is it Andreessen who says something like competition is for losers but like the <laughs> challenges and the absence of competition it's like you really don't have anywhere to ground your product right you're very much the only person you can compare yourself to yeah and 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 yeah exactly and it, it can also be quite frustrating right so you can you can imagine like the 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 challenges that we have but i think they're really great challenges because those sorts of tensions are what will change the textile industry right so if, if you just take the textile industry it's it's such an archaic industry and imagine like imagine like telling someone that there is a platform out there that will allow you to digitally design rapid sample and produce on demand. I mean, you could tell maybe even some more, uh, some more traditional mills out there, it would be just mind blowing. They'd be like, that's not possible. Well, like what, what's crazy to me is like two weeks ago, I went through the exercise of trying to source some fabrics because I want to make a shirt and it's nearly impossible to find any catalog for like Laurel Piana fabrics. And you literally have to buy this book of Xenia swatches and that thing's like 500 bucks. So it's like the barrier to entry is already insane there. And then like, customization is out of the question. Yeah, exactly. Like why, why is the barrier of entry just to get the catalog that expensive? Right. It, it basically like it basically, unless you went to, uh, unless you were a textiles major at, or, or you went to fashion design school, or if you maybe were panned down that like an older catalog from, from years ago, you would basically, you would just have to keep asking around and, and make shifting all of these things together. So it's, it's quite interesting. Like there, there is no resource or no actually trusted resource out there that can allow you to like learn or start to interact with tactility. It's quite literally impossible, at least digitally. It's like what you said, you have to know someone who knows someone, right? Like being someone who does not work in this industry at all, my only way of finding these fabrics is going to like one of those old fabric stores and praying the old guy there is willing to talk to me and like help me find what I want. Yeah. And, and, and at that moment, you wouldn't even know if it was fit for purpose. You would just be stoked that someone wanted to give you some, you know, like some sort of information about something. And then you'd be like, okay, let's go with it. You know, because it already was such a huge barrier of entry just to get to that moment to have one choice. It, it, it's like the Birkin problem. It's like, I just want a Birkin. If they give it to me in teal, it doesn't matter. I'm just getting one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I'm always asking that. Like, how can we make that not be the system that we live in now how can we make that um pretty much like we know that those systems will always exist right those systems will always exist but how can we create new systems that actually try to enable behavioral change and i think that's the most right. important part so i think the last time i checked you had to request access to create right yeah is that something that you guys are planning to like lower the barrier to entry? So anyone who wants to sign up like a student is able to just create an account and start playing around. Yeah. So, so, so basically it, it's been, it's been, um, released in phases, right? So first off it was very much, um, if you were a client that wanted to work with Byboda, you could, you know, you could use our proof of concept, um, 
and and later on you know later on we then opened it up to like a small group of um qualified clients that would fit the bill of of using the product and then later on we started to play with different subscription models and then now we're at a place where we've put the subscription models um completely out there in the open so the next phase now is really to open it up even further so giving the opportunity for everyone and anyone to use the platform and then once it's time to, and and you're you know you're willing to want to sample or play around further that we open it up even further but in indeed like in this second uh, half year we will then start to open it up even further so going to um any of our channels and being able to play with bible to create will be definitely coming in the next couple of months no that's great i'm glad you guys aren't doing like the what, what's that thing everyone's doing right now where they're trying to create like artificial wait lists just because clubhouse did it to drive up hype like i'm really sick of that and i feel like i see it way too much yeah so what's happening with that actually like so i've been reading a lot about that but i'm i'm i haven't spent like my time diving into it but i'm seeing that more and more often now yeah so it's like what companies will do is like as you mentioned you're a small tech company right and like the scope of what you can impact is very small so you artificially narrow the user base you have to create the sense of prestige and scarcity right it's like what clubhouse does but now SaaS companies do that too like there's this company called Airbyte that does data integration. And if you want to use their hosted service, you literally have to fill out a form and get on their wait list, which makes no sense because this is something you can like, they have no problem servicing, but it just gives the illusion of, oh, there's so many people who want to use this. Yeah. I mean, once again, there's some sort of uh, this, this system that we live in, right, is, is basically saying that, and if you want to, to be successful, that you need to put this sort of desirability and exclusivity out there. So it's, it's kind of like a behavioral thing is that the, the reason why this, like the system is why it is now or what it is now. And, and that's what's causing people to, to do these sorts of things. It's like, yeah, like sign up for the wait list. And it's like forever signing up for the wait list. Man, it's insane. Like, like it's crazy to me that like these companies that propose that pro supposedly democratize everything like engage in these tactics. And yeah, I'm like, I think we're all sick of that. Yeah, because because for example, um, if you let's just take someone like Patagonia, right? I I own maybe one trail running shirt and maybe one trail running t-shirt from patagonia and it was because it was hot as shit when i was in virginia and i just needed something <laughs> that was a little bit more breathable for my runs but outside of that i i don't have anything else from patagonia but i feel an affinity or like a sort of uh, uh my values are very much aligned with their marketing or their values as well so I, I, I align myself with their communication of what they want to change, like, like, you know, what they want to change in the industry and what they want to do for the planet. But it doesn't mean that, like, just because I spend money for a certain brand doesn't mean that I'm aligned solely with their values. So what brands need to start understanding is that there is something out there besides monetary or 
capital value, right? So there's cultural value and there's actually um, responsible value or sustainability value, right? There's a lot of different ways that someone can interact with your brand outside of actually like paying for it. Society fetishizes growth and money. So it's like really hard justify that, which I think like we just have to do a better job correcting. Yeah, and, and I, I completely agree. And, and I think what needs to happen now is we need more strategic thinkers that are actually trying to put products and services out there that will improve upon, yeah, human life or enhance your human experience in some sort of way. And also the fact that, you know, brands need to be built on communities. Like if, if yeah. it's not built upon communities, then, then, then why, 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 you know, why should it even exist? Cause then it's just that people buy it without actually understanding, you know, wh what your the message that you're trying to put out there. So like, if you just take someone like the, if you take communities like the Valence community or the Arcteryx community, or also someone like the acronym community, there's a lot of people out there that don't necessarily drop all of that money, right? Which is, which is not, not it, it's not cheap, but can still interact and talk about, let's say, how functional things could certain be, how it improved upon their, their life, how it, you know, how it actually is fit for purpose for their lifestyle. It was perfect for this one moment, et cetera. I think brands need to support these communities way more than they're doing now. And how can you actually allow for those people that are a part of that community and giving back to them? Like, how do you actually give back to them? And it's not just about making more products, but how can you do that through brand alignment or actually great storytelling without actually just that the end goal is that they would buy something, right? Yeah, totally. I think like to me, communities are super powerful. And I think just the, the point of communities is one part, like once you're within it, it creates a sense of ownership. So you feel like you have some say within it. But I think what the other thing about just communities and these online forums is the knowledge sharing, right? That makes the products infinitely more interesting. Like I can go read all the copy on the Valence website and I, I, I learned something about the brand, but it's like through those people who like myself, who are like way too passionate about something, who know way too much, you learn so much about that just reading through like 300 pages of Super Future. And I don't think you necessarily have to have money to do that, right? And to be interested in that. Like when I got first into Valence, I was like in high school delivering newspapers. Like I had no money for any of this stuff. But like reading about it, it was like so interesting and it was so fun. And you know, now I have the financial means to buy it, right? So I think building communities is a great way to like get people into the brand. Exactly. And and I mean, if we go back to your young self that was delivering newspapers, like you were you were able to interact with a brand and you were able to even learn, like let's say at a young age, you were able to learn about how garments can one enhance the, the the human body and actually it does actually enhance your performance and then the other one was actually you were learning about materials that you had no clue would enhance you know your 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 day-to-day -day life so for example the these knitting is such a like such an uh, an old it's 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 existed for I, I can't even like centuries and centuries right and like um so the first thing is that like for example let's say some you know 
these technical fabrics say that uh, it is moisture wicking and it also uh, is breathable, etc. Yeah, so is merino wool, <laughs> right? And merino wool as as a raw material that's blended with other materials enhances the human body. So, so for example, the perception that's also quite interesting is that if you tell someone that wool is breathable, they'll probably be like, "I didn't know that," or "I always thought wool was itchy," right? So the the conversation also. I think that's great. Like that, that there's communities out there for, let's say, for Valen specifically, and also the acronym community, is that it's so open source and sharing that in ways is the change in the industry. That is that like technical strategic change that will change the industry because we don't need any more new concepts every year. Like this is inspired by X or. I went to a flower market and now I'm inspired and now I'm going to make a new collection about it in two years time. Right. Like <laughs> I think teaching people and getting people talking about your product is so cool. Right. Like it's that discourse that keeps the product feeling fresh, like under the traditional model, like, you know, Louis Vuitton drops jacket X comes out a couple Instagram pictures dead in the next season. Right. Cause no one cares about it. I think the cool thing about communities is it's like Jacket X comes out, but people love it so much and there's so much interesting things about it that you continue talking about it so it continues to feel fresh rather than, oh, it's a new season, I have to go buy whatever's new. Yeah, so that's the thing. What's the lasting thing in those two variables? Probably the community over the product, right? So like there, there, there's a reason why others feel that the products are desirable is because they're are subcultures and products that build the space around who is behind the product or maybe the team behind the product or the vision behind the product. So I think that's, that's super interesting to me. And, and which leads me also like back to platform building or community building is that like anybody can be a part of it as long as they're willing to, or they want to learn something about it. And not everybody needs to like, interact with it like super deep but as long as you want to interact with it you can be a part of the community which i think is really great well charlie i feel like that's a great quote to end <laughs> this podcast on thanks so much for coming on thanks so much man thanks for having me thanks for listening to the podcast and many thanks to charlie for coming on you can find us on instagram at raincheckpod and charlie at charlie doom thanks again bye